we'll come to the observed effect. <laughs> A podcast of travel stories. Each week we hope to bring you a conversation with someone we meet overseas <laughs> and at least one good story. Episode 100, And Who Is My Neighbor? Chicago, where Martin failed. With each episode of this podcast, I've tried to learn what moves people by asking strangers how travel has changed them. The theme of travel is just an excuse to examine change. As I mark the 100th episode, I'm not ready to draw any conclusions, but maybe that instinct is what I've learned so far. Greater thinkers than me have spent longer on this path than I have. Martin Luther King Jr. said, The human spirit does not move without great difficulty. He would know. I went to the spot where he lived in my city, which is now the MLK Legacy Apartments in North Lawndale on Chicago's west side, and I asked the community organizer in charge of the MLK Fair Housing Exhibit Center Trevor Riley, to tell the story of the freedom movement. In the bitter Chicago winter of 1966, King moved into a low-income apartment and tried to shine a light on segregation in one of the U.S.'s biggest cities in the hopes that it would cause the first ripple in a broader reform across the country. There was a rally in Soldier Field, negotiations with city government, including a fateful talk with Mayor Daley, and marches. He stayed around a year. It was the only campaign he led outside the South. I wanted to know how this trip changed him and what mark he left on North Lawndale. Can you just explain exactly where we are and the right. significance of it? So we are, uh, we are in what locals and old vice lords call the Holy City uh, in North Lawndale on the west side of Chicago, um, specifically at the intersection of 16th and Hamlin. Uh, we're in a building whose address is 1558 South Hamlin, where King lived uh, when he was in Chicago. Um, the neighborhood is North Lawndale uh, in the 24th Ward. Um, and uh, this was sort of the base of operations for the freedom movement. Um, I actually shouldn't say that. It was Stone Temple Church on Douglas Boulevard. Um, that was the main base. Um, but this is where he lived um, across the street in one of those food and liquors that you guys might sell on the way here was actually uh, the location where King would go every evening and play pool. Um, so that's why this is so significant in a sense, um, historically. Uh, I guess not in a sense, really significant historically is because very uh, seldom in black neighborhoods do we have um, sort of lived history like this. We often have, uh, for instance, someone pointed this out to me, blew my mind. If you go to any black neighborhood and then you go to Martin Luther King Boulevard or Muhammad Ali Drive, it's like the worst part of the city, you know? Um, and uh, this is not, or while it is a, a tough area, you know, um, at that time it was even worse, and that's why King came here. Um, so, uh, right off the bat, when I called you, I, I appreciated your 
immediate response that you don't want to romanticize MLK and um, kind of get yeah. misled. Because you guys know he got his ass kicked, or you guys ass kicked, right? Yeah. Yeah. He came well, here and thought he was slick, and well, that, that, politics ain't no beam. <laughs> well, that, that's the story I want to tell. I yeah. still think it's important to um, to tell that story. Right. So I I don't know if we can kind of cover that quickly. Yeah. So yeah. starting with like. What was Lawndale like mm -hmm. just before he came, and what would he have found? Yeah, you know? so from what I understand, um, from what some of these pictures, like you can see in the background across the street there, the really, really torn down building across the street, um, and you actually see this nowadays, you know, I don't know which, we got, which way you guys came in from, but uh, Central Park and 16th right here, um, this is something that's like fascinating to me because I spent a lot of time growing up in Iowa, where it's all developed, you know, um, we don't have abandoned buildings, um, and then on the south side, it's like, you have them, but um, more middle-class blacks on the south side, so they'll be boarded up or this or that. You'll see homes that literally the bottom might be boarded up so people can't get in as easily, but like the top would just be blown out. Like you'll be able to see inside to the, the roof falling in, you know, just like, that's kind of crazy. Um, and so I think that was the state of Lawndale at that point because this was 1968. And so blacks had started moving in the late 50s, 60s. Um, and so, again, because of all those reasons that we just talked about, um, I'm always so surprised. Um, I don't know how familiar you guys are with redlining or restrictive um, uh, housing covenants or things like that, but uh, when we talk about discrimination, we talk about, uh, I don't know, even to use the capital R, racism word, right? When we talk about that, it had so much to do, um, yes, with crazy mobs of thousands of whites that would come from Cicero or Marquette Park and literally burn down people's homes and entire blocks. It has so much to do with um, actual legal language that was built into our institutions, like uh, lenders, like um, ARAP, the American Realtors Association Board, which in order to be a realtor, in order to sell homes, in order to uh, connect people with mortgages, you had to be a part of that. In order to be a part of that, you had to be white. And so blacks could not get homes. Um, redlining, obviously, was the practice um, where, you know, in the dark red D, um, and I think as well as in the C and B sections, that's why they call it redlining, because there were these maps created uh, in about 1929, um, oh, 1934, this says. Um, basically, you couldn't give mortgages to anyone in there. Um, usually this was determined by, they would go to the neighborhood, and if they saw a Jewish family, or they saw there was a Jewish population or a black population, they would say, okay, don't give mortgages, don't give insurance, don't give basically everything you need to own a home in order to uh, develop uh, wealth, um, as most people are familiar with it uh, nowadays. You could not uh, do that in these neighborhoods. And that was just the realtors doing that, or realtors, uh, insurance agencies. Um, if you have you guys ever heard of Family Properties by Beryl Saturn? Great book, basically. Like what, what's it called? Uh, Family Properties. Okay. Definitely worth a read. Um, yeah, I actually have a copy of it right there. Um, really good. She outlines not only this part was like uh, restrictive covenants from realty boards and realtors, um, from neighborhood associations, things like that. Um, but also, um, in the 60s and the 50s, when blacks moved from the South, again, second uh, great migration, um, say you're a black family and you want to live in Cicero, the special story that happened, Cicero Rides. You move into that apartment building, and then that night, there are 2,000 whites outside with Molotov cocktails, with bombs, with bats, with bricks, and they are attacking you and trying to kill you and trying to blow up your house. And they succeed, and the cops are with them, and you're out of it. Um, so it was both more, uh, it was both like the classic, sort of what we think of as racism, which is the physical power that whites held in order to destroy black bodies and black property, um, but also 
the uh, the legal side, you know, the actual uh, legislation that went into, and these are the restrictive covenants. Um, yeah, family properties. Well, explain the covenant, the word covenant. And yeah, so a covenant would say, so say you. It's like a city thing, a covenant. So it was, and so we can actually reel it, just so I don't. Uh, so the so basically Chicago um, wrote the blueprint for what the Federal Housing Administration then began to implement around the entire United States. And so this was legal language to say, okay, you know, since we're, uh, since we're the traditional population in this neighborhood, say it's a white neighborhood, right? We have decided that if you're gonna buy a home in this neighborhood or if you're gonna sell a home in this neighborhood, you cannot sell to blacks, um, you cannot sell to Jews, um, and if you're gonna buy in this neighborhood, you cannot be black, you cannot be Jewish, and at this time, Jews were not considered whites. Um, and so that sort of language and that sort of policy always very, well, not in that time, but you know, always, they wouldn't say just because you're black. It would, it would always be something well, it's, it's like different. In defining as high risk, but saying eligible. So they would say, oh, we can give you a mortgage for there because right. it's right. really dangerous there. Or Right. Um, so yeah, so they, so they developed this language and then Chicago was where it was, like I said, it was uh, like blueprint. This is where we created these ideas. Um, and then the entire United States started using these practices in order to keep um, blacks within the urban center. Why Chicago? Uh, was it in response to mm. the migration? Or? Mm. I think I think that has a lot to do with how Chicago uh, was was built up. Um, for instance, um, Jews before they were, were considered whites in America, um, in a neighborhood like North London, which was Jewish and Bohemian before it was uh, predominantly black, um, Jews were kind of okay with blacks. You know, you pay your rent, you're you take care of your uh, your home, like, I don't really have a problem with you, you know? Um, but again, you know, this is uh, the Jim Crow period, right? And so you have to remember, like, incredibly irrational, almost, you know, I think Martin Luther King often called them, like, pathologies. Like, actual mental illnesses is what he considered racism to be. And so I think that had a lot to do with it, too. You know, Chicago uh, has always been a city of neighborhoods where, you know, if I talk to, like, uh, one of my organizing um, heroes, Mike Deacon, he grew up on the west side in Garfield Park, um, in a Jewish neighborhood, I believe, and he, he tells stories of, you know, in that time, and uh, there's a very popular, or I won't call it popular, very well-done documentary on the Vice Lords um, in the 60s when they got a $250,000 Rockefeller grant. And the back history of the Vice Lords, they grew out of social clubs, athletic clubs, you're familiar with Richard uh, J. Daly. Um, he came out of a social club and basically these social athletic clubs were built so that you and yours in your neighborhood could go around and pick fights with the boys or the, whoever it was in the other neighborhood and so this was always right uh, built on racial delineation you know we had Jewtown on Maxwell Street we had um, over here like I said that was Jewish before and then in the 60s it changed over so I think it's, I think it's complicated mm -hmm. but it's something that um, for instance like in New York I was so blown away by the diversity there and someone uh, pointed out, they said, when New York was being formed, you know, all they cared is that you came with your goods, with your money, with your people. Um, they didn't really care where you came from. So today, you know, you go there and people are all on top of each other. Mm -hmm. um, so I think the response was from whites was like, we don't like black people, period, right? So how can we develop policies um, to get them out. Um, and then if you think of things like urban renewal, uh, not only policies to get them out, but policies to get us in. You can think of University of Chicago, they uh, did, a, again, I'm like reading in my mind straight from family properties. 
Um, but you know, these are different uh, legislative uh, and, pol and political and policy practices that they use in order to, you know, at this time, as you look at the map, the dark areas, this is not where whites lived, right? Uh, whites, uh, I guess this would have been even earlier than that. Uh, but so, so in the white areas out here, not classified, areas not built up, A district. So the, the better parts um, are where whites were living at that time. Whites did not live in the city center like they do now, right? I was going to ask you that, but then I thought you meant it was all black. Predominantly, yeah. The only, as you can see, you know, it was like the downtown district, just a little bit. Yeah. Um, and of course, at this time, the Gold Coast, right up there. the Gold Coast, of course, and Lincoln Park. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And then this was obviously the well, one I always see, but this was like uh, train fields for like cattle. All the cattle that were being slaughtered in backyards were being shipped up on uh, the BNSF Pacific. I don't know which train, which railroad line. Um, but yeah, at this time, especially falling into the, 60, the 50s and 60s, when whites really began to leave the city. Um, this was not, it just wasn't a, a white space. So they had to create policies in order to protect their own neighborhoods, um, protect what they thought they wanted their neighborhoods to be. Um, and these, and redlining is like the classic uh, version of it, but it could go as far as, like I said, um, in that book she tells me, this is what was so interesting to me, but she talks about um, when blacks were moving in uh, Chicago, they could only live in specific neighborhoods. So when they did move into neighborhoods, you know, there was a, a well-to-do black family. Um, you can afford to buy buildings, so you buy it and you move in. That night there were 6,000 whites outside, like literally for a week. Every night, if they can't get you out of there and the first night they're out every night, like it's almost hard to fathom nowadays because of how socially isolated we are and we don't really get together in these big, big groups of hundreds, thousands of people. Um, but that was the type of animosity that whites had and of course they still have um, in some pockets of the United States, right? Well, some pockets of everywhere, right? Well, there's no need for that anymore because the system's in place. Perfect. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So yeah, for better or what was the worst, it's like that was the case. Um, and then it got worse and worse and worse. So um, what Martin Luther King was really passionate about, in a sense, was not only these restrictive covenants, but then um, you guys have heard of contract buying. Um, so contract buying was a process where a realtor would come to you and he would give you a contract and that contract would, would you would believe that it said, I pay my mortgage and I will own the home. In fact, that contract said, if you miss a payment, I can evict you. You no longer, you, you know, you will not own this home. And if you were able to pay it all off, you could get the home. But then these guys would sell homes to blacks in North Lawndale, neighbors like Inglewood. Um, there was even contract buying or selling in uh, Hyde Park. But as soon as you miss a payment, um, you would be evicted. Your things would be thrown out the next day, and then he would go and sell it to another family. Uh, what makes it even worse is that the way that they would get these homes is that they would scare whites by saying, uh, this is panic peddling. I know, I'm trying to use buzzwords, maybe you guys have heard of this stuff. Um, they would go on a block and they would knock on a door and they would hire a black lady to, to walk down the street with a stroller. Um, and they would say, hey, look, your new neighbor. And obviously that would freak out the neighbor and she said, no, my, you know, this is my neighbor, it's been like this for so long. Um, and she would move and he would say, you know what, it's gonna be hard to sell your house because now there's black people living here. So I'll, I'll pay cash right now, $5,000. And then he would turn around, buy the, buy the house for $5,000, sell it to a black family for $14,000. Um, sometimes it was between 75% and 108% markup uh, on these homes. 
and then and then he would begin to uh, you know as soon as he would sell that family to the, or the home to the black family, not only would he charge rates that were very hard for families to keep up with, he would actually send building inspectors to your house so that way they would say. You know, you got you to build a new porch or we're going gonna to keep finding you. Uh, we have some of the strictest building code laws in the United States because of the work that these guys are doing. So, so yeah, just like as usual, um, I don't know how familiar you guys are with the history of, of race and, and raising all that. All angles we've been attacked uh, for our property and for our bodies. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's uh, one other channel I remember, which is steering. Can you talk about steering? That? Some, uh, steering. I, I don't know. Steering. Where like realtors steering. would steer... Uh, minorities to enclaves like specifically so that had to do in a sense um, so just like this map outlines um, it went even a little deeper to a point in which so if you moved to uh, Chicago and you were black you couldn't just like I said not only could you like socially not buy a home in a white neighborhood because you would be attacked and probably murdered right um, but they created these uh, these restrictive covenants where it said you can't buy them, so realtors wouldn't sell to you. Not only because you know maybe even if they did want your money right, they wouldn't get any more business. They would be attacked for selling to a black, right? Mm -hmm. So they had all these incentives or negative incentives to not sell to black. Um, and then they created these restrictive covenants where like you sort of couldn't uh, if you were a member of the uh, realtors board, like you get kicked off of ARAB, the Association Real American Realtors Association board. Um, but so then what it, it did is, yeah, it shoved people into certain neighborhoods because you couldn't live anywhere else if you were black. Um, and this happens today, you know, I think it was Bernie Sanders when he was running for his campaign. He did, or when he was a young man in the 60s, he did a study where he would call and he would have a black family call or go into an apartment building and say, hey, you know, do you have any vacancy? Um, they would say, nope, all, you know, nope, all full. And then you have a white family come in and say like, yeah, come look at all of these apartments we have. Um, so again, it's sort of like, by any means necessary, by any means necessary. Um, so what that ended up doing is that, you know, we talk about the deterioration or um, ghettos or things like that. A lot of the reason is because you're confined to this one area, you're paying too much for your mortgage. If you miss a payment, you're gonna, uh, you're gonna get evicted. And so you begin dicing up, you know, if this is a two bedroom home, you dice it up into an eight bedroom, an eight unit uh, apartment building. That way you can move people in to help you pay your mortgage. And then of course, at that point, you're doing that just to pay your mortgage. You can't even keep up with the building while more people that should be in there are in there. So, so then we have a deteriorating housing stock. Uh, whether it was, I don't know, maybe there's some outliers that really didn't care about their property or it was because um, they were living you know, in a space like this, fitting 20 people in a home you know, the size of this um, and not being able to keep up with the property, um, the quality and the condition was very poor. Um, and so he came uh, to fight for, again, what do you call it, open housing, um, or even like about the, so the end slum housing bit, you know, end slums is the idea that, um, you know, the, the housing quality itself isn't, isn't very good. You know, there were, at this time, there were a lot of, and Beryl Satter talks about this a lot, um, there are fires happening, you know, fires where the housing quality is so bad and it's chopped up in so many ways that families were dying within their homes not being able to get out before uh, it burnt down. Um, and so because of that, um, I'm trying to think. The, oh, yeah, this was towards the end. So he, so King had won some big, fat fights in smaller cities in the United States. Um, he'd done some really good work um, through civil rights. And so his next thing is that, I forget who called him up, 
but um, but he was called to the north, called to Chicago to come and visit and see the the issues there. And was it Bevel or Araby, maybe? Ooh, I, I bet, I bet, because those were some of his. There were uh, two guys. Al Raby. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, that's sadder. I remember when the kids come in here, they always like, that's a bad guy, right? <laughs> that's actually one of the good guys. Um, but I really love like a picture like this because this to me was like the real power of King and um, was that he was such a charismatic leader, you know, um, and that's something that... Can you describe the picture? Yeah, so he's speaking and it looks like he's speaking between uh, a few large uh, apartment buildings and there's just hundreds of people filling the courtyard as he stands uh, slightly above them, probably on like a first floor porch, um, speaking through a loud uh, megaphone. Um, and that is something that I'm really passionate about is, um, you know, there's, there's two types of power. There's organized people and there's organized money, right? Um, and so when you can bring this many people and then have them behind one fight, um, that's powerful. You know, that speaks volumes to people. Um, and then when it has, again, it has to have direction, right? Um, we saw the Occupy Wall Street uh, protest where they had tens of thousands of people and no results, right, besides some interesting uh, news coverage. Um, but when you have people like this behind an issue um, and through a structure, you can see uh, sort of a, that graph, which is basically like a tree um, of different organizations that were all aligned on this issue. Um, can I jump in really quick? So the council on, or the coordinating council on community organization yeah. was instrumental in getting him here. Uh, can you talk about that? Is that still active today? Is that something you're I part don't of? Think or? So. I don't believe so. Okay. So it's at least especially on the um, on the west side. And I don't know too much about the, the big organization. But um, for instance, on the West Side, we don't have, I think there is a West Side Pastors Coalition, or there is West Side Pastor Coalition that still exists. Um, but this is a conversation that I'm having right now with organizations throughout Austin, uh, East Garfield and West Garfield Park, uh, Lawndale, and a little bit of Humboldt Park. But on the West Side, unlike on the South Side where you have, say, like Seoul, South Siders, uh, organized uh, under liberation, I think, or, or something like that. You have a lot of these coalitions or uh, where people work together to bring their collective power, their collective numbers, uh, together around one issue at a time uh, to show that uh, they have power around issues that matter to them. On the West Side, we don't have uh, any of that. It's very little um, institutional. Um, well, for instance, when you look at our institutions, it's all nonprofit social service agencies, uh, needs-based organizations. It's not organizations that are built on uh, more proactive work of um, building issue campaigns um, like the End Slums Movement. Um, instead, it's uh, organizations that are built to um, provide therapy for people that experience the trauma of living in a neighborhood like this. Um, so I don't know if it still exists today, but I think it was a, a major reason. Um, King wasn't only a charismatic leader, and that's why he was so successful um, in some of his campaigns. Um, he understood uh, the strategy of organizing, and that's the most important part, right? Uh, we can all, you know, and I think I referenced a little bit earlier maybe, but, you know, we can all get really loud. Humans are really good at that. We do that uh, very well, especially when we're in big groups. Um, but can we get uh, really loud in a coordinated way that strategically we know will produce a certain reaction from those who we are looking for a certain reaction from? Um, so the best organizers um, always say, or that I've heard uh, from them, like Ernesto Cortez or Mike Geekin or Ed Chambers or Saul Linsky, um, they say, you know, the, the power is not in the action that organized groups uh, 
come together to uh, achieve. It's in the reaction of whatever organization or power that they're trying to elicit a response from. Um, and so I think King recognized that, and I'm sure um, a lot of these organizations were already part of that, um, but he probably recognized that there was a strength in the organizations. Um, I will say, I do know that, um, so this was during um, the machine, the really strong Democratic machine days, uh, Richard J. Daley. Um, and so uh, something that still happens today um, and that uh, Richard J. Daley leveraged was the fact that, you know, you could just build relationships with specific, uh, specific pastors and threaten them if they were to meet with King. And so actually King had a very hard time getting into certain churches because these pastors were being threatened by the mayor saying, if you work with King, you know, we'll take away this, we'll take away that. Um, make more difficult for you. Um, so I think that was a part of it. Um, and I don't know, I'm actually curious how much he, yeah, it just makes me think now, uh, wonder how much he actually uh, contributed to developing that infrastructure. Mm. And man, I wonder where, um, well, I guess I know where a lot of it went. Well, shortly after he died right there were the riots in 1968. Um, but that's when this building itself was kind of damaged and uh, the original building on the site mm -hmm. that he lived in. That's gone now. Oh, I, I read. Oh, really? It was damaged in those riots. That's depressing. And that's why there's a new building here that we're sitting in. Okay. Yeah, I was going to ask, can you talk more about mm -hmm. why Chicago, after he had his successes in, in the South? I wonder. Well, in the, well, I just wonder in the sense of like, man, he didn't really know what he was up against. I think a lot of it had to do with, he was mainly in the South, right? And so, um, um, and I don't know too, I don't know, I don't want to uh, make you believe that I know too much about the, the real details about uh, the relationship between Southern Blacks and Northern Blacks at this time. Um, but I think for a lot of Southern Blacks, um, there is this idea that up North was just the promised land. You know, like I, I work with homeowners now who moved here in the 60s uh, for work. You know, there are more jobs up here. Um, there are more businesses, you know, like I, I know a woman who before she was 18 and she was still living in uh, Mississippi or Louisiana, everything was home cooked, you know, all of her meals. And then they came here and there was a line around the corner around the chicken shack or the, the pizza place because they were so surprised. Um, and so I think it had a lot to do with uh, that fact of um, incorporating northern blacks and the struggles that they were dealing in urban places into this work that they were, uh, that King had been pushing for the last, man, when did he start really doing this stuff? Probably 15 years, you know, he'd been at like hard work, uh, whether it was the, the bus boycott or anything like that. Um, so I think it had a lot to do with just finding a Northern um, place to pick a fight and try to win it. And he really didn't win it. Yeah, so, uh, so like, I don't know, I heard it, I can never say the phrasing well enough on this, but someone put it to me when I was at the mayor's office, uh, someone who was um, just very ingrained, grew up in the civil rights movement, things like that. He said, like, in the South, um, they don't care how uh, powerful you get, as long as you're not that big, as long as your reach isn't that great. Uh, in the North, they don't care how big you get, like King came here and marched with tens of thousands of people, as long as you don't have any real power. Um, and so that, that rule true, you know, Chicago, like uh, if you guys are familiar with machine politics, um, this is the idea that um, basically there were over 3,000 organizers around the city whose direct job, uh, their role in their neighborhood and their precinct 
um, these preseason captains, was to get votes. Um, so however they had to do it, whether they had to get you a turkey for Thanksgiving, whether they had to get you a Christmas tree for Christmas, whether they had to get you that, that little job, you know, sweeping up um, in the county building, you know, whatever it was, that was their job. And so that power uh, created a deep, deep loyalty, right? Um, politicians in Chicago um, have, uh, well, used to after, before 1972, and in a sense they still do, but they had what's called uh, patronage or patronage, where they had thousands of jobs where they chose specifically, or the people beneath them could choose who would work those jobs. And so this uh, created a very strong power structure um, that ended up being a bit too much uh, for King to handle because um, when he came and he met with uh, Richard Day Daly eventually after all the marches, things like that, they met, they came to some sort of soft agreement, uh, gentleman's agreement, um, and after King left, uh, Richard J. Daly then uh, publicly explained how it was just a gentleman's agreement, that's all it was, and we're actually not going to do any of that stuff we talked about, but it was a good conversation, he's a good guy, um, and that was his public uh, message. And so um, I had someone was explaining to me a little bit um, yesterday, he was just explaining um, that you know King had never organized in such a big city, you know. Um, and so I think that might have been part of the crux of it all is just that it is hard to move a city this big. It's hard to move, um, well, at that time, again, you know, it's hard to move the machine, uh, the democratic machine, because it's built on such deep-rooted cultural expectations of um, power and patronage and mutual um, uh, benefit, basically, um, amongst individuals and groups. Um, so I think that was a big part of why he lost. I read that uh, the local community organizers who convinced him to come make Chicago a kind of beachhead in the larger national struggle mm. said it's a great place because all you have to do is convince Richard J. Daly because he controls everything. And if you convince oh, him, yeah, yeah. then the whole city will move and then the whole right. country will move. Right. But then that just didn't right. prove I mean, to be the case. Yeah, you got to remember, I mean, Richard J. Daly, he grew up in Bridgeport. Uh, Bridgeport was the scene of the 1921 uh, race riots where there was a young boy swimming and he floated too far over north to the white beach and someone threw a rock and hit his head and he drowned and he died. That sparked off these riots where, you know, if you guys read the book Boss uh, by, oh, what's this guy's name? Uh, Royko, the famous journalist. Um, he explains how, you know, Richard J. Daly would never admit to it or not, but at that time, around 1921, Rich, he was um, soon to be the president of Hamburg uh, Social Athletic Club. And this was, again, like I was explaining in the beginning, this was a club of young men who got together and they did events together. There was, there were about 300 of them and they would do whatever they want. They'd pick fights. Um, you didn't want to go into Bridgeport if you weren't uh, uh, Irish Catholic. You know, you'd get your ass kicked basically by a bunch of dudes. And Richard Daly was one of these guys. And so um, this, uh, always, 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 you got to get into the, the anthropology of everything. So you got to think, a guy like Richard J. Daly and in Boss, um, Royko actually references or like alludes to some of this, but you got to think, you know, no matter what, um, oh man, uh, Richard J. Daly, he said such kind words about King at, in city council when he was naming uh, uh, Martin Luther King Boulevard or Drive after um, King. He said such nice things and yet, I don't know, it gets to that real world situation where it's like, man, you gotta remember, like, I grew up in a place where in the 90s, like, um, you still didn't wanna be black and go to Bridgeport, you know what I mean? Even nowadays, Canary, there's probably still places you don't wanna be black and be, you gotta think about Mount Greenwood, where, um, I forget if a, if a man was killed or murdered by police down there last year, but um, it's just, it's steeped in this whole long tradition of like, 
man, like, even if you could get the whole city against him, because he holds all the power, it's like, if his personal instincts are to never let you win because you are black or whatever reason, or because what you're doing would help blacks, um, hell no, it's not going to happen. Yeah. And so. Can you talk about Marquette Park, the march? Mm, yeah, from what uh, I know about a little bit. You probably know more than me if you read it. Yeah. Well, just the... the uh, King, someone threw a brick oh, at yeah, his yeah. head, and he actually stumbled and knelt and was dazed. Yeah. And so I mean, that's that's sort of like what I was talking about in a sense earlier. Uh, this whole um, this idea of the uh, what could we call it the very low value or I don't know, I wouldn't even say I don't even want to put value the word value in the sentence, but um, the disregard. Uh, that, that whites have for black bodies and black property and anything that blacks are associated with, right? Um, it even pervades into our psychological understanding of um, the word ghetto, right? We, we associate that, oh, that is, that is a low, cheap thing, you know? So again, that's, that's a deep psychological explanation, but I would tie that into, you know, at this time, uh, especially in a place like Marquette Park, white neighborhood at that time, um, when uh, there's blacks marching in your neighborhood, the first response is to beat the shit out of them. You know, this is Chicago where, um, you know, again, you know, I've just heard so many stories from, from back then where like that was the thing, you know, or yesterday hearing Blanche Shooks talk about, you know, coming back from school and as soon as they got into the viaduct on Western, uh, Western and Roosevelt, they were safe, but up until that point, they were running from Bohemian kids from the other neighborhood, you know? Um, and so, yeah, so that has always been um, the response is even, I'm trying to think now a good example of it. Oh yeah, so, well, physical harm to the black body is the ultimate way to hold power uh, over um, individuals, right? Um, all this sneaky stuff with politics and policy and uh, finances and things like that is one way, but you know, at the end of the day, you have to remember that um, blacks can be harmed um, without anyone being held accountable. Uh, in 1968, when uh, King was hit in the head with the brick, and 2018, when you know there's literally this week, June 6th, there was a guy Maurice on the south side who was shot in the back. I believe he did have a weapon, but he was running away with his weapon. Um, he shot in the back, and not only uh, did then the police then allow his body to sit for 30 minutes um, instead of rushing him to a hospital, um, but then when the when the body got to the hospital. There was actually a police barricade keeping the family from seeing uh, their loved one in the hospital bed. And they had to find out that he passed on the news. So just, again, you know, I always like to connect it to the fact that, like, nothing new. Yeah, like, beat the shit out of him. You know, kill him, hurt him. Whatever means necessary uh, to take this guy out. You know, that person with that brick, their, you know, their life's dream or their ambition would have been satisfied if a king would have suffered an aneurysm and died the well, moment he was there. Right? There were thousands of whites and they chanted as he knelt, right. kill him, right. kill him. Right. Yeah. So yeah, all, uh, and Ta-Nehisi Coates, so I'm, when I talk about the black body, this is some language that Ta-Nehisi Coates has used in his book, probably elsewhere as well, but especially in his book, Between the World and Me. He's writing a letter to his son, um, sort of a la uh, James Baldwin when he wrote to his young nephew, um, I forget what that essay was called, um, but he's explaining to him uh, just how vulnerable uh, blacks are, whether, you know, again, it doesn't even have to be physical harm. It could be, you know, we're vulnerable uh, to not being able to acquire housing. We're vulnerable to not being able to acquire uh, work when we want work or when we need work to feed our families, things like that. Um, and King was not 
immune to that, even though he was so powerful. So, yeah. And so they struck this fake agreement, and I, I read that he declared victory uh, yeah. and eventually uh, left. Yeah. yeah, but he also said, you know, I, I forget the wording, but that uh, Chicago was more racist than, than the South. Like yeah. he'd never seen violence directed at him like yeah. that, you know. And then he was killed a year and a half later, I think. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, what is the, the legacy? We're sitting in the legacy apartments. Mm. It's a really ambiguous legacy, you know. Yeah. And you're carrying on the work that, that started there, yeah. um, like 60 years later. What, what, uh, what do we make of that? I, mean, um, I think, um, you know, people ask me why I do the work I do, for instance. Uh, and I say I'm tired of seeing people lose poor people, black people, brown people, everybody. You know, like I live on the border of Little Village and Lawndale, and so I don't get, I do get east of Western pretty often, but predominantly around black and brown folks. And um, I think King, in, in the same way, you know, um, a lot of this stems from an idea of justice, um, but you know, and then uh, Saul Alinsky, you know what I mean? Justice doesn't mean that we just um, let King fight all our battles for us. You know, justice means um, that no matter how long it takes, no matter how hard it is, no matter how many times we get our ass kicked, no matter how many times um, we lose, no matter how many of our uh, leaders are murdered. Um, if you think of Fred Hampton, uh, think of um, oh, who was the other Black Panther leader that was murdered as well by Ed Hanrahan. Um, but no matter all of that, you know, no matter if Daly backs out uh, of the deal, you know, um, I think the real power and what, what we're seeing and what we've been seeing for the last maybe 40 years in Lawndale um, is that uh, even though we don't look like Oak Park or West Loop or um, Gold Coast or, or River North now, the work continues, you know, people don't stop being poor, you know, people don't stop being uh, disenfranchised, people don't stop uh, suffering uh, the inequities of school closings or, or any of these things. Um, but what people do stop doing is, is caring, is trying to fight, you know, and so to me, you know, carrying on his legacy and all that, um, if, if I could say that I do that at all, is very much just about um, some of the questions you asked me in the beginning, you know, do you want to be a Barack Obama type? It's like, no, nah, man, I want to be, you know, a Trevor Ryle. I want to be a dude who wins victories in this day, in this age, on whatever, you know. And I don't even, my name doesn't even have to be on it, you know what I mean. I see myself very much, um, wow, getting a lot of literature now, but um, I think it was David Hume. He said, you know, he, he talked about uh, great historical figures, great historical men, he called them, but, you know, we could make it. Um, or open to gender. Um, but he talked about that the individual is not separate from their environment, from their society, from their nation, from their country, from their, their city. They're just not separate. You know, you are a product of everything around you. And as such, you have the duty to uh, try to better that around you. And so I think that's, that's where a lot of King's Justice came from, uh, where a lot of what is growing now, slowly, 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 as a as a twenty, as a you know, happily admitted twenty-four-year-old, um, I admit to impatience, and I and I know that my peers have a lot of impatience, and we want victories, and we want to fight big issues. But I think uh, often the big issue, and, and something that King was able to do, like I described in the picture behind us, uh, with hundreds of people in the courtyard, he was able to move people. You know, um, and if we can move people, 
um, that we can move money to, um, and then we have power. Um, and so I think if anything, you know, trying to continue the legacy is the same thing that, man, you know, um, what I love about Chicago is that you meet people all the time that are part of this history that you will never know their name. You'll never know them, you'll never hear them, and yet they can tell you stories about how they won this, or, or they got, they just got a little bit further, you know, we inched it a little bit further. And so I think my work has a lot to do with that, and, um, you know, if it's similar to King's work or, or pursue similar uh, goals and ambitions, um, it's all just related again, just to justness and justice, um, just in the sense that, you know, I mean, gosh, it, it all ties back into the whole craziness or the whole pathology of the idea of racism or discrimination, um, and it buries us back in that conversation of, okay, well, in the face of that, what, what can we do that um, sort of sidesteps it all because it's not going anywhere and still builds uh, a neighborhood like North Lawndale up. Um, and it's got to be multifaceted. It's got to be uh, complex. It's got to be uh, all across the board. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if that And what is the mood in the neighborhood now? What's the community mm-hmm. like? So it depends which community you're talking about. Um, so in neighbors like North Lawndale, I found at least from um, just like even my own family on the south side, um, my grandmother, she was like an educator. She was, um, she was a woman of morals. She was a woman of principle, of dignity. Um, and she was down to fight and pick fights and, and win fights, hopefully, for her neighborhood forever. To this point where I still meet people in the city who, when I tell them uh, my grandmother's name, like, oh, no. Like, I know them. because I know her because I'm from that neighborhood, too. And, and I really miss her. Uh, things like that. And so um, I think there's that type of person. Um, who maybe they have capacity to to try to stay optimistic about the work in the neighborhood. And then there is a whole lot of people that are tired of being talked to about anything that has to do with making the neighborhood better. Um, You know, we're Americans at the end of the day. I think people kind of forget that when they think of the black and brown community. Uh, We often talk about, like you just heard me say it, the black and brown community. You seldom hear people talk about the white community. We hear about white people all the time, right? They're, They're granted individual status. But when we talk about uplifting the black or brown community, it suddenly becomes like a team effort, right? Because we know it's going to take a team effort. Um, and so I think in a large sense, um, a lot of, of the mood in the neighborhood is like, I'm looking out for me. You know what I mean? Just like everyone is, right? And yes, we have our, our support structures like our family, like our church, uh, uh, different things like that. Um, but I think the mood very much, again, for say like, um, our average median income is somewhere around 24000 a year, uh, maybe as low as 15000 a year. Um, these are families with up to four children, you know. Um, so I think the mood of those folks is, again, you know, like, let me eat, to, you know, not like they're not eating, but let me feed my children, let me get them to school, let me hopefully find a, a, an apartment um, in a different neighborhood, you know, or let me live somewhere else, even amongst some of our homeowners, you know, like, um, uh Organizing, you guys might have read, or if you're familiar at all, it's a lot to do with agitation. You know, so one of the first questions I ask people when I meet them, when uh, I'm trying to I'm trying to identify a leader or uh, get a feel for someone, I said, "Do you like living here?" Uh, or maybe I said, "I don't even got to ask you. You don't like living here, do you?" You know, I, I can assume for them. You know, um, because yeah, there is a deep, and this is something I noticed when I started moving back here full time. There's like a deep uh, and sort of pervasive and uh, unspoken directly of in terms of like the more abstract sense um 
sense of like dread, sense of psychological uh, harm, burden, and trauma that comes with um, the lack of order on our streets. Um, and so when you go outside again, these two food and liquors, you know, I, I literally, you know, when I was driving here, I saw a young man who, he just graduated high school, he's going to college um, in the fall, and yet, and, and I don't know, I, I, don't, I don't know if, if he does do any of this nefarious stuff, if he's making a little money, but he's hanging outside this spot where I know only guys that I don't like hanging out with hang out, you know? Um, and so I think that is the mood, is that, um, you know, hopefully we can make a better life somewhere else, right? Um, and it's not the mood of, you know, well, obviously if I can do anything about it, um, there will be that mood in amongst um, the homeowners that I work with, we're building an organization called North Carolina Homeowner Association, definitely trying to build that mood, um, but it's not in a very, um, not that people aren't going to be optimistic, but we don't have to be optimistic um, to actually win victories. You know, we just have to uh, be uh, intentional about what we do. So, so yeah, I said the mood is just like it is if you go to, well, for instance, if you go on Avers and Ogden, talk to some of those neighbors, mood's probably pretty nice, pretty nice over there. They got the, the, the health clinic, they got, um, they got a cafe, they got um, Lumanati's, they got a fitness center, sort of nice, you know, in the housing stock, and it's nice neighbors, and like that. On the flip side, if you go to 15th and Christiana, or 16th and Christiana over here, you're going to meet some guys who can tell you some disgusting stories about their, their very regular, for them, daily life, you know, that would seem not very regular to you. Um, so I think when you balance that and you meet in between, everyone, for more, more or less, is of the mood of like, well, I'm, again, I'm going to focus on my part and everything broader in terms of bringing the neighborhood up or anything like that is like, yeah, right. You know? so, and, and I'm happy to be there in the yeah, right section because, yeah, yeah, right, um, unless we begin uh, building power to people. So, so, yeah, so just to get a little insight in my work, it's like I don't like talking about issues. I don't like talking about uh, – well, I'm happy to talk about it, but – in terms of inspiring someone to action, inspiring someone to have some of this optimism or work, do some of this work, you can't talk about, well, you can if you want, but, you know, you can't say, man, we need to stop the shootings. You know, that boy that was just shot on 16th and Lawndale, you know, I'm glad he's alive still, he survived, but how do we stop that? Instead of going that direction, I say, how can we get 100 people to know about that and to be part of um, an action to maybe do something about that? Um, how can we just get more people? Why don't we have more people that are part of an organization that will move on anything? Um, and that is how we can build. Um, in fact, I'm really excited to read this article that I ran into yesterday about social networks. Just the power of knowing people in your neighborhood. This is the power of churches, right? So if you're in your church, you know, not only do you get a little bit of God every Sunday, but you can ask your church, like, hey, church, pray for me. Um, I just got kicked out of my apartment. Next thing you know, 10 people in the church are saying, oh, I've got a unit downstairs. You know, um, so the power of social networks. Um, is how I think uh, people are going to gain again. I mean, I don't even, well, I personally don't really like optimism because of the long, long history of folks just like me, um, and I'm, I'm guilty of this in large senses too, but, you know, coming to neighborhoods like North Lawndale and saying, like, what if, you know, and like, I love it, oh, let's visualize, you know what I mean, let's, let's dream. Um, but are you willing to, to devote years of your life, uh, hours and hours of your day, um, not just to the fun stuff, not just the winning the fights, but, you know, like getting your ear talked off about some stuff you don't want to hear, you know, just some regular stuff where it's, you know, some woman talking about her catering business um, instead of talking about building power in the neighborhood. 
And but you know, if you if if you continue this relationship, if if you give her that ear, she's gonna feel a certain way. And when we get down again, always bring it back like the anthropological, psychological part of human beings. Um, if you can build trust and accountability and relationships with people uh, based not on any specific issue, but on the fact that they know you're a stand-up guy or a stand-up woman, um, then maybe we can start moving towards some realistic optimism. But yeah, the mood is sour. Definitely sour. I mean, shoot, we've had, yeah, even just from a violence lens, we've had about 45 murders, so people don't like that. Uh, we hear gunshots pretty often. Um, from a development standpoint, you guys see these lots that are being worked on. It's like, it seems great. Like, whoa, what's going on? Um, but what doesn't seem great is when you go and ask anybody who lives here and say, I don't know what's going on. Like, you know, and that, again, just like the, uh, the sort of impotence that people in uh, Lawndale feel um, and neighborhoods like it, um, as I think one of the things that makes the mood in neighborhoods like this very um, dark, dystopian, uh, gloomy, um, and why often when we bring residents of neighborhoods like this together, um, instead of getting to the meat of how we develop um, strategies and issue campaigns where we can win victories, um, we just air grievances because there's so many grievances to air and everyone's got, uh, like I talk about all the time, if like A plus B equals C, like we know that from basic math, say, um, say A is a problem or an issue. B is a solution. We all know tons of these. You know, we've read about solutions that have worked other places, and we see problems on the streets every day. Um, but we don't get C, and C is results. C is actual change. And so, in between A, B, getting to C, equaling that, we have like strategies that actually bring it there. And that's where people don't really think about that often. And so, I think that's where a lot of our lack of hope and a lot of our lack of yeah, yeah, oh, I don't like using, I try to stay away from cliches, but yeah, hopelessness, you know, for sure. That's the, the general feeling that people usually lean back on um, in Lawndale. Yeah. Let me ask just two more questions. Oh, ask us. It's my um, Saturday, I'm chilling. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you again for yeah. coming on a Saturday. But no, I love this. Giving, I, I studied philosophy, so like, it's like a symposium for me. You know? like, yeah. It's really fun to just have a conversation. Totally. Uh, what about you? Um, mm -hmm. So the, the podcast, I always ask people how travel has changed them. Um, so has travel changed you? Do you have oh, traveling itself? Yeah. Do you have, what's your best travel story? So, hmm, what did I say? I guess I'll talk about the, the first year I was back living full-time in Chicago. Um, I was living on the south side and while I was working at the mayor's office. So I'll commute all the way from 130th downtown and any neighborhoods, like I have a lot of family, uh, like obviously in the hundreds, but uh, my family used to go to church actually at West Lawn in this neighborhood. I didn't know that until I moved here, but they used to go to church uh, neighborhood uh, Woodlawn, 64th and Drexel, a uh, church called Southside Gospel. And so for me, like travel is like, I only knew this once I got a car. Like I realized you can just drive through neighborhoods and like look at your phone and not experience the neighborhood. Um, but so while I was uh, taking the train that, that year during the mayor's office, I recognized just in my own, again, and always, always, always digging down into like the real, just ongoing uh, psychological experience of being human, um, walking through neighborhoods like this, feeling vulnerable, feeling just like everyone else, feeling uh, uncertain. You know, I spent a lot of time growing up in Iowa where you always feel secure, you know, uh, you don't like your door at night. Um, and so seeing things or, or seeing people that I've been taught or, or, or that I know in fact sometimes that I should be weary of, 
um, that really changed how I looked at how I handled myself around uh, people in a neighborhood like this. Um, how uh, you need to, uh, or how possibly you can be an authentic person in a situation like this, um, and how important it is to not, um, again, you know, essentialize or romanticize uh, the struggle or things like that. Uh, because at the end of the day, it's just someone's regular life. Um, so I'd say, in that way, you know, walking through um, uh, strips like 79th Street or what was the worst time? Almost, yeah, almost getting robbed in Inglewood, just like getting scoped out, things like that. That really like opened my eyes up to like, yeah, like you are just another human being, you know what I mean? Um, and it really uh, humbled me, especially, you know, being a young man, feeling like I'm hot shit working for the mayor's office. Um, really opened me up to just the idea that, uh, and get my butt kicked in my work itself, you know. Um, really opened me up to the idea of like um, struggle or, or the, your own personal internal struggle is really important uh, and learning how to uh, win, having mindfulness in that moment or in these long, long life period moments where you feel like you're always on the losing end of things. Um, just like in those small moments where you feel like you might be vulnerable uh, in your, uh, just your physical experience. Um, really helped me. So in that way, I guess travel around the city has helped me. Um, it's also really eye-opening to see different parts of the city. I don't get up north that often anymore. And so when I'm up north, like I often like, I don't know what it is. Like I'm just flabbergasted. I'm like, oh, I forgot people live like this. You know, the neighbors like this. Um, people are never relaxed. People don't chill. You know, you might you might see them and they're just hanging out like they're chilling, but they're constantly like tweaking inside like constantly you know doing a checklist like is everything good like are we you know who is that i don't recognize that car and then you go up north or or in other states and things like that and you see people sort of lackadaisical you know um and so i think travel has taught me um that you really need to get a sense of uh of people and, and not to use them um as like the example of like, this is what law or whatever, wherever is like, um, and that you have to really experience it personally. But again, I mean, then we can get into a whole long conversation about like what empathy means, um, how to practice empathy, how to study and how to build your own empathy. Cause I don't think it's, I don't think it's like a, just a, oh, I'm using my, my emphatic muscles right now. I don't think it's that. I think it's like an actual trained uh, skill that we can cultivate in ourselves. Um, that is very powerful depending on the type of work that you do. Um, well, no, I think it'd be powerful anything. I just read, well, you know, we can go into another conversation. She read about a, a, a new model photographer who her, her empathy is what took her further. But anyways, um, travel really did that for me, just like being able to um, experience things more, um, uh, what's that word, um, viscerally. Yeah. Well, that, that's the hope of this podcasts you know travel is i think the best tool for practicing empathy yeah i i think but i like that okay r.i.p anthony bourdain in that i know note, right I know. yeah that's real so this is usually my very first question to everyone i interview mm -hmm. can you describe what you look like for the people listening oh, yeah. give them a picture of who they're listening to yep <laughs> i am a stout um, wispy <laughs> haired wearing um, uh, <laughs> middle of the road um, milk chocolate uh, biracial black man <laughs> I usually wear uh, a button down I don't like t wearing ties anymore um, I love the business casual feeling after wearing a suit for a year 
Um, and I wear pointy brown shoes, and I always, always, always wear my one pair of black slacks. Okay. Very nice. I'll always wear good socks. <laughs> I learned that from my friend Howard. So, <laughs> yes. Well, that's it. Thank you so much. That was incredible. Thank you so much to Trevor for taking the time to educate us so thoroughly. There's a lot to think about from this interview. The MLK Fair Housing Exhibit Center is open for visits. Just reach out ahead of time to arrange someone to meet you. Thank you to Dana Boulay for her music, and thank you for listening. Wow, the great depth of this city. There is so much, and, and not even the city, Chicago land. You know, there's so much that we can dive into, pour into, um, if we're willing, uh, again, you know, that research. Uh, if we're willing to do the research, if we're willing to commit our minds to it. Um, so I hope this can be a piece of that.